So tonight, we are going to study and, and kind of do a read-through and look at some things in the Old Testament book of Nahum. I'm sure you guys read it a few times this week already. Some of you are going, there's a Bible book called Nahum. <laughs> so here's where you'll find it. You're going to find after Daniel, so you have... They're called the major prophets. It's not that they're better than the minor guys. It's just the content is not as long. It really is kind of what it comes down to. So you have, after Daniel, Hosea, Joel, and Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So I have to put it to some type of, there's got to be some way I can remember it. But in the middle of what I just told you, Nahum. If you found Micah, go right. If you found Habakkuk or Zephaniah, go left. And you'll find this very short, three chapters, this prophetic word from God through an instrument, an instrument that is named, this person is Nahum. So, you all there? We'll work up the projection as we can work through it. I got them the list a little late, so they're just now putting some of that together. So, you remember the book of Jonah? Fairly popular book, right? It's one of those that make the uh, Sunday school top 20. You know what I'm talking about? You know, the story of David, we teach that one. The, uh, you know, the Goliath one and, and, the, and the fish in Jonah. Because Jonah was given a message by God to go and preach to the Assyrians. The capital of Assyria was Nineveh. The Ninevites. And we know Jonah being a faithful man of God, the most effective evangelist in the Bible, numerically, statistically. You know, when he got that message, he was so glad to just go and, and preach this message from the living God to these uh, wonderful people there in Nineveh, right? Yeah, we know that ain't what happened. We do know what happened. He's like, oh, you want me to go there? Okay, I hear you. I'm going that way. I will go, the direct opposite, literally. He, he, he jumped a boat in Joppa, Kim and I got to stand on the very point, in all probability, where he launched from. It's a fascinating thing to stand in history like that. To stand there just outside of Tel Aviv and go, and read our Bibles and go, man, Peter was a Joppa. And Jonah, Jonah, years before Peter, said, I'm going the other way from here. And we know that God had an interceptor in motion you could say, a fish. And the story of Jonah is very fascinating. I've spent a little time with it right now because it's kind of the lead into Nahum, really. Jonah's on this boat. It's tempest-tossed. And he's sleeping in the bottom of the boat. He's got no problem. They're literally throwing their cargo overboard. There's no reason to go anywhere when you chuck what you're, all your goods because you're going to sell goods. But they have to throw it out to find a ballast, to find some sense of, of stability in this storm. And they wake the guy in the bottom of the boat and say, Are you, what is your deal? And he goes, ah, I'm the cause of your storm. What are you talking about? Yeah, God said go this way, I'm going this way, and so I'm the cause. And they're like, man, what are we going to do? And he's like, I'd suggest throwing me overboard. Which I'm just sure they're going, I don't, I don't, we shouldn't do that. Even though they served other gods, they certainly knew that was not the way to end the storm. But ultimately, they do. And it's calmed. And instead of bobbing like a you know, bobber, Jonah is swallowed by this mighty fish. Gets a rapid transport over to the coast edge of Nineveh, the city of Nineveh. Gets burped up on the shore. Think about this. In all probability, he had no hair on his body. It would have been bleached off from the acidity of the stomach's whale. And some people argue, well, I don't think it was actually this. Listen, it says it's a whale, deal with it. That's what God said, that it's a fish. It's just a mighty fish, burps him on the shore. His skin would have been bleached in all probability. No hair. And he is now smelling like fish with seaweed hanging off of him, walking through the city saying, repent. And guess what happens? They repent. It wasn't because of the appearance of the prophet. It was because of the, the compassion and grace of God that this city turned. And Jonah goes up on the hill. It wasn't to praise and worship God. 
It was to pout and whine because the enemies of Israel had experienced the grace of God in such a way that God, Jonah knew, I knew you would do that. You're just that kind of God. They deserve eradication and you bring them salvation. You bring them a message of hope and they should have been removed. There are enemies. We could get, you know. All right, I know some of you. Let me say it this way. Republicans and Democrats. Is it possible one would like to see the removal of the other and the other determines the other is not worth having around? And, you know, okay, I could go into other different comparisons. Jonah is just keyed up. And God's like, what's your deal? Don't you realize, I think it was said, like there's, other, there's over 60,000 in this city that do not know the difference between their left or right hand. You know what that says. They were so young, they, did, they were just little kids, little, little toddlers, if you would. Have you no heart even for them, Jonah? Well, the Ninevites do repent. And there's a great outpouring, a great work. Jonah, I mean, Nahum picks up a hundred years later. It's been a hundred years, and the people of Nineveh like a dog returning to its vomit. Maybe you've read that in the Proverbs. Maybe you've seen that around your household. There's this gross thing that happens when something terrible is there. Walk away and come back to it. And it's actually used in the Proverbs to describe human behavior in a very gross and graphic way because the Ninevites go back to idolatry, to carnality, to immorality, and much worse. They were a very sadistic, mean nation people. They had a brutal disregard for life, and it was, it was a tactic. There was this tactic they used to instill fear in everyone they conquered. So at times, they would even line their own tents in their walls with the skins of the people they had conquered. They would literally flay the skin off the, the, their, the people they conquered and put them up. And we'll hear some quotes from some of their leaders as we work through this study. It's very graphic. You know, you know, if you know much about the Assyrians and how God actually used them to actually bring discipline upon the nation Israel. But they were known for literally putting fish, hook, fish hooks through your, their nose of the people they would cap, capture and then lead them naked and barefoot to, the, to whatever land they were taking them to. Very, and so you can see what happens. Anytime they were moving in on an area to conquer, many times people, the whole villages would just commit suicide. They would rather die than be in the hands of this, this brutal, sadistic people. So that's kind of a little background. Um, we begin in verse 1, the burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. So we don't really know much about Nahum um, other than what we get right here. Uh, probably the Elkoshites were probably referring to a specific area. Um, around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's interesting because uh, Jesus spent a lot of time in, in a city there in the, city, in the region of Galilee. I got to visit it on my last trip here uh, this last September. It's a city named Capernaum, right? Some of, sometimes we call it Capernaum, which there's no E there. But anyway, it's Capernaum. It's pronounced, the, the word is Nahum. And it, it's interesting, it, it literally means city of Nahum. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Here's, many believe that this is the Nahum, that that is the city of. And so Jesus was in this area. Uh, Nahum means Yahweh is comfort or comforter. So it's fascinating, but a little sidebar tidbit for you. We see here in verse 1, chapter 1, this burden against Nineveh. Burden is basically, it's a... It's a heavy load. You think about just that in a physical sense. But this is really could see, be seen with that thought. It's a heavy word against Nineveh. It wasn't Nahum's word. Like we know all scripture is given by inspiration of God. We know that it's his word. And he imparts it or implants it in the heart of a man. Say Isaiah or Jeremiah or the apostle Paul or just all these titles we have. He implants it in there, but he brings it forth. So it's really the, the word of God planted on the heart of men. You could even see the heart of God coming through the hand of men. 
So we're given insight into a little bit about the particular people he used as vessels to bring his word forward. It's not Nahum's word. Nahum is a uh, vessel, a piece of conduit, if you would, in that sense, that the word's carried through. He says this is a heavy word against Nineveh. Verse 2, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. So God is jealous. That could be a problematic, right? Because we're not supposed to be jealous. So how come he gets to be? Doesn't seem like it. How is this that worked out that God is jealous? God has a love for his people and what is best for them. The, the term, what's applied here, it's kind of like what we apply to some of our uh, children's stories or cartoons or like animations. It's called anthropomorphic. So anthropomorphism is when you give Winnie the Pooh a voice and call it making him a person. Does that make sense? Because he's not, but you know, that's kind of the expression. Obviously, it's animation, so we accept it differently. But So what we have happening is God uses her, human terms to help us relate to the infinite, all-knowing, eternal God. Does that make sense? So sometimes he'll say things like the hand of God. Well, it's not literally meant to exceed for us to, to imagine five fingers broadcasting the stars into place. It's helping us understand in this temporal realm, in human frame, the motions and the actions in the heart of God. So it's not always meant to be seen as a physical manifestation or frame. So using human terms um, to express these things, because God's jealousy is different than our jealousy. Our jealousy is most always, human jealousy is most always self-oriented. Can we agree? There's a loss or there's something that somebody else had gained or whatever. So our, our jealousy was always self-minded. His is not, he's not selfish for himself. It's an expression of love by God for his people. See, when, when we turn, when, when humanity, beginning in the Garden of Eden, um, and, and on through, because he does say more than once that he is a jealous God. And so when, when humanity turns from him, when we turn to the, the gods of this world, the images, the interests, the other temporal things, that God knows these things will hurt and, and cause pain and bring separation. These things of this world, many of us have experienced these things in that we've given them an undue amount of interest, although we wouldn't think of them as idols, but we've given them the passion of our heart, if you would. And we know they very practically lead us away from God. Well, God's love, he's expressed us, he's jealous. He doesn't want you giving your love and your passion to something else because he knows what's best for you. So when it speaks of God's jealousy, it's speaking of, of his, his love because his love compels him to look out for us. We understand that, right? His love compels him to look out for us. God desires that we would not give our passions and our desires our lives over to things that will hurt and even destroy us. So to say God is jealous is a way to describe in human terms the love of God as he intervenes on our behalf against that which would take us from him. Because this expression you're going to see is because he starts right here. We see he's a jealous God. And now we're going to see he's going to speak of judgment, which people are uncomfortable with that too, but they know what happens and they don't mind extending judgment when they've been wrong. Is, is that true among humanity? Among individuals in this room and such, or wherever? That when you've done wrong, you want some form of justice because you see the end of true justice should be some judgment. Somebody should have to pay for what they've done to you or taken from you. But sometimes people don't want to think of God as being judicial or just or imparting judgment. Why? Because God is love. And we know God is love. And because God is love, how could he judge anyone? How could he you know, bring hurt and heartache onto people? That's the world you live in. We can go back into the 60s. We can go back to how many of you heard of a Dr. Spock? Before many of you. Not like star 
trek or whatever. This was a guy that really presented just love is just, you don't do anything negative or anything that would cause hurt feelings. And I'm probably not accurately summarizing his idiocy, but he was, you know, recognized for other things and with degrees and stuff, which verified the stupidity. Nonetheless, it was all just love, 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 love. And and what did we have in the 60s and 70s? Love, love. It was a a mess because, you know, we can't have judgment. Man, just chill, brother. Just hang tight, man. Lay loose, dude. It's like it was so confusing. We're still dealing with the consequences of that philosophy because it didn't end when people woke up. I don't even use that. I can't even use that term anymore, can I? Because it means something totally different now. It's like fall asleep. Oh, we'll call it woke. He's like, no. Ah. So anyway, you see where I'm going with this. You know, the love of God will be manifested in, in an element of discipline and justice. We, we read recently, those who have studied through Hebrews, God chastens. He corrects those whom he loves. You do it as parents. You even bring it to, to maybe employees or even in relationships. You, you bring about this truth. Like, you can't do that. This is wrong. You can't be done that way. It's not because you're a, a judge and juror. It's because you have love and compassion and kindness and you understand that this doesn't change. I love you enough to say you got to stop doing that. Right? We get it. So here we have the statement, God is jealous and avenges. He... He allowed certain things to happen to Israel. No one snuck in and took them captivity. The Assyrians didn't. The Babylonians won't later in the chronology of the the Bible as far as where we're at tonight. He allows even adversaries and and really what you'd call as terrible people in regards to national practices and and cultural things that I just hinted at earlier with just the brutality. He allows them and even functionally you'd have to deduce uses them to bring discipline upon his own children. And it's confusing. When we get to Habakkuk, which will, will be our, probably our next book, that's the confusing thing to the prophet. I know we're bad, but give me a break. We're not that bad. Those guys are a mess. And you're going to use them to correct us? And God says, yep, that's what's going to happen. And it's just perplexing. God is jealous. He avenges and is furious. He will take vengeance on his adversaries and reserves wrath for his enemies. Those who declare there is no God and those who are not just philosophical, but they are, they are aggressively indifferent, even to the point of practicing Satanism and various different things and just all these really dark things we call them. They're enemies of God and they will not be overlooked. That's why we present the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we want those who are enemies of God to know the truth about God so they can make a decision about the grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ with sufficient information. So if they reject him, they know what they're doing. The Lord is slow to anger, verse 3, and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way. In the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the seas and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can, endure, who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down, thrown down by him. So here, you know, the prophet Nahum is given this word to, to remind those at that time, and I, I believe there's some elements, at least by principle, of future application of, the, of, of this particular prophecy, or these truths. Think about it. What is the most powerful thing on this, in this planet? It, it, it's not money. It's not any self-generated, man-generated thing. You can't compare to, to the, the power of God in the natural realm. I mean, people, like right now, there's like serious flooding in California. And every year there's, there's earthquakes or there's flooding or there's tornadoes or there's tsunamis all around the world. And there's nothing that compares to that power. 
And, and not just that element and aspect of the natural realm, so many other things that he's conveying here. The wind, the storms, the cloud, the sea. He can, he can fill it up or dry it up. Look what drought causes and famine that is the result of all these things that man can't fix. And so what's being said here is God is, is powerful, all of this. The mountains quake, the hills melt. The earth, it literally just speaks, heaves or rocks at his bidding. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it, who can stand before this? Who could endure it? We are just experiencing uh, some cataclysmic, but some, we're experiencing annually. And, and sometimes, um, you know, there's a, I learned this from uh, an insurance policy because the rate was higher because this one property was in the 100-year floodplain. You ever heard that term? If you've never bought land or bought a house, you probably haven't. But the 100-year floodplain is just like, well, every 100 years, it's going to soak this place. So we're going to have to charge more because you're within the 100-year floodplain. Because there's this pattern, uh, uh, weather patterns and various things that happen on this planet, and we're aware of it. So there's common things that just happen. I don't believe those things are in any definitive way to be the hand of God in the element of judgment. I believe what he's leading to here and talking about here. What about who can stand before his indignation? What about when he says, I am done with this? Because we just recently studied Revelation. And that's really him saying, I'm done with this. You have passed the point of return. You now have said, you don't want me. I'm going to now pour out my wrath, according to Revelation 6, on a Christ-rejecting world. And that level of indignation, as we read about some of those details in that seven-year tribulation period, specifically the latter half of that uh, tribulation time, who could endure that? His fury is poured out like fire. And the rocks are thrown down by him. I've seen a, a, a rock slide. And just, you know, kind of watching these like little bit movies, little short, killing time with YouTube because I don't want to watch ABC, NBC, or CBS. So I pick what I want to watch and probably I'm just as messed up. But anyway, I'm just kind of watching. Here's this car driving down the road and there's a, a rock slide. And it's like in India or somewhere. So you've got the image right here. Okay, it's not paved. So here it stops and, and, and you see all these little, little, little gravel just, just kind of coming off the hill. And, you know, and then pretty quick, the people just start running. And I don't know what they've seen because it's not shown in the video. But this, these rocks just start coming down just like just crushing these cars. I mean, they're not real big cars anyway, but the rocks were big enough to just wipe them out. And, you know, we get it. You know, you think about what we, we've seen, you know, but what about when the rocks are thrown down by God? They're literally upheaval is happening and whole hillsides and whole mountains and eruptions and all those things because God says, there's a point when I say, I'm done with this. There is a functional line in the sand where mankind can push and push and say, I'll do it later, I don't care. And we know now, as we're living on this side of the cross, and we're reading about what brought to the cross, we see the results of the cross, and we see what's told and to come in what we call our eschatology, our study of the end times, the latter-day chronology and events. We know what's going to unfold. And it actually does have some of this, agreed? Some of these things are just depicted here. But notice what happens here in verse 6. All this is being described. And then we see in verse 7, the Lord is good. You deal with it in your own logic. You have neighbors and friends and family members and people you engage with. It's like, how can you read verse five or 6 and then declare in verse 7, the Lord is good? See, people, they struggle with that. Is that not true? Well, if God is kind and loving and gracious, then why did this young child die? Then why did this situation happen? Why were these horrible things done to another human being? And it was repeated and repeated and it continues to happen generation after generation. If God is good, then how can this be? Well, I'm not going to be able to answer that in totality, but I can say this. Why do we question the goodness of God when we see the evil of man? right? It, it, God is blamed for what man does, and then man denies that God exists until something goes bad, and then he declares God exists again and blames him for it. It's a, almost like psychosis. It's almost psychotic, the logic. It's really strange. But the one thing that you have to wrestle with, I don't think wrestle with, I think the simplicity is 
I, have, I like this imagery. I'm, like right here, I'm standing on a square. You guys got squares out there too. We use carpet tiles. I'm on a square. So in this square, I have a little room to move, but this has to kind of represent the foundation of what I know to be true. The foundation of belief. Because things will try to push me outside of this. And one thing that I, I have to embrace because it's the truth. I have to receive because it's a promise. I have to accept because it's a proven fact of history. And that one thing is, God is good. God is good. What about the... Yeah, that's a horrible thing. That's a terrible situation. It doesn't change the character of God. It makes it hard to work out because I'm temporal. I'm, I'm circumstantial. I, I'm living here as an eternal person because of the work of Jesus Christ. But I, I still have a, a, a very much a, a body sense, so essential, a, 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 a temporal frame of mind in the way I look at life. No matter, even if I study the Bible all the time and pray all the time, I still have to run it through these processes. And what I have to set and establish, all this that hurts and all this that confuses and all these things that are very difficult to reconcile in my brain, God is good. God is still good. But what about this? I don't know. How come this? I, I don't know. But I'm not going to give up what I know. I'm not going to trade that in on what I don't know. I don't know those things. I do know that after 30 years of walking with Jesus, losing very dear family members and friends and uh, comrades and, and, and men and women that we've been very close to and have them go to be with the Lord, I do know in through all of that, in the moment I can't see this, but as I pass through that and continue in my journey with Jesus... I see the good hand of God in those hard times. I see maturity come into my life. I see things transform me. I see things differently because. Now, I don't, that wasn't done so I would mature. I mature because he's faithful. So when those things happen, then I work through. Because one thing we do know, you live long enough, you'll die from something. Right? I mean, we know mortality. We just don't want to deal with it. And I, it's smart. But there's never a good time to die. No one has ever said, well, I'm kind of glad they're gone. You see what I'm saying? You don't ever, you just, you realize it's always hard. Even if we realize, if we, if we embrace a, 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 an opinion, grandma passes away, then mom, then me. There's an order that we have subconsciously accepted because it's common, Right? we understand older people pass away because they're older. <laughs> They've been around longer. And when someone younger passes away, it's, it's, it does, it's out of order. It hurts more. We understand that. But that's never been assigned by God. God says, we, I, you, none of us know the day or the hour by which we'll depart. We know. We know we are mortal beings. So let's not say because of this cancer because of this condition, because of that horrible treatment, because men are evil to men, God is not good. Let's just say, you know what? The fact is God is good, and I, and I don't understand that right now. The fact is God is patient and kind and loving, and I can't reconcile that in my head, but it does not change that truth. And, and you can tell, I mean, there's, just, there's some things that are just not easily reconciled, but the Lord is good. And I believe that's why it's kind of inserted here in verse 6. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of, this, of its place, and darkness will pursue its enemies. Verse 9, why do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. For while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble, fully dried. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Interesting thing. Historically, up till recently, um, archaeologists and quote scholars and students of history, they couldn't find anything about Assyria. 
So they literally claimed that the Bible was just made this, this name up. So then in more contemporary times, I can't remember when it was, they, they uncovered not only from an archaeological dig, but in that archaeological dig, they found the annals and, and the, the, the history books of Nineveh within the city and of Assyria. And it proved all the supposed, you know, against God, you know, anti-Bible people wrong once again, which actually, if you've studied much about archaeological discoveries, it happens all the time. That, that all people say, well, ah, you can't trust the Bible. It's not this. It says things that don't exist. And then they uncover a place, uh, Jericho, or they uncover a Nineveh. Well, they uncovered it. Well, what they found out was there was a siege. So the Babylonians and the Medes are the ones that will take down Nineveh in fulfillment of this prophecy. So they're kind of merged together. But they also joined a kind of a confederacy. And so this confederacy comes up against Nineveh. And when they come up against Nineveh, the, the, uh, the military presence, the, the city, because Nineveh is probably, according to what we read in, or picked up in, out of Jonas, it's probably over a, it's over a million people. It's a big city. It's a really big city. It was the, one of the biggest. It was kind of the, the world city in the Assyrian Empire. Uh, Jonah, I think, tells us it takes three days to walk from one side of the city to the other. That tells you how big it is. Well, it, the military comes out when this siege is laid. It's not really trying to do a siege, but they're really just kind of attacking the, the, the uh, Babylonian and Mede and others' confederacy. So when the Ninevites come out, they actually push the you know, army of the Babylonians back and kind of seem to have a victory. And so the Babylonian group regroups and they lay another attack. And then they get, many of them get killed. They get pushed back again. And the third time this happens. And so what history shows in this particular battle, or in this little series, the Ninevites became so cocky, so confident, because they had already pushed this force that was bigger than them, and had, you know, pushed them back. They literally had these drunken orgies and just were just, kind of blasted and wasted and immoral and just carrying on the Babylonian Medes regroup and then conquer them. They, or they don't conquer them. They, they just lay an onslaught. And so when you uncover that, as I was listening to, to just this history and the background on it, it's fascinating because look in verse 10. While tangled like, thorn, tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble, stubble field. That was one of the battles that ended up bringing about. What an amazing detail that we have proven and supported, declared through the Bible, but proven through the history books. This actually happened. And you'll see that when you study prophecies. There's so many details and so many things that are confirmed. These people were against God. They had experienced the grace of God, the love of God. They experienced a great measure of forgiveness of God. They're not, they weren't looking to the Messiah, but they were experiencing God's grace. And then they've turned on him. They went against him. And he's saying, you know what? This is what's going to happen. You guys, you plot evil against me. Thus says the Lord, verse 12. Though they are safe and likewise many, yet in this manner they will be cut down. When he passes through, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For now I'll break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave, for you are vile. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feast. Perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. We know... Nahum is a contemporary of Isaiah. I believe Micah is as well. So you see right here, he's actually sharing a word that actually is very similar to what was given to Isaiah, which I find interesting because we see that work of God repeated even through history and even in our times. I see it in a very slight comparison, a very small comparison in, in one sense. I'll talk to other pastors and they'll tell me what they're teaching. And we don't talk, you know, I mean, it's not like we all have to kind of, you know, submit our recommended teaching for the year or whatever. But here there's multiple different pastors who are teaching a very similar text or the same book. 
that are not like in allegiance, so to speak. They're in affiliation, like with the Calvary pastors. I talk to people sometimes. And they're sharing how, man, this really stuck out. I was reading in Jeremiah, and it's really hit me. And then somebody else will say, you know, I was reading on Jeremiah. Or, hey, did you catch this guy's teaching on Jeremiah? See, what I'm saying is, you know, guys, God is speaking to Isaiah and even in Micah and Nahum at a contemporary time hundreds of years ago. He still even speaks to his people in the same fashion, that he confirms his word in and among his people. And it's, to me, it's exciting because it's, it's so simple. It's not um, transformative. In other words, it's not like a burning bush. You know what I'm saying? But yet at the same time, it almost is. Because it's just this little reminder. God is good. God is in control. He speaks to his people. He protects his people. He leads his people. He's telling Judah here, you know, just stay the course. Can you imagine being God's people? and experiencing correction, but you wouldn't necessarily see it as correction. What if we as a nation are being corrected right now or given the opportunity to turn back to God? What if God's using a corrupt system and people in place to awaken others to what the truth really is? What if that's what's happening, to draw people back to him? It certainly could be. I'm not saying that's what's happening. I believe that's what's happening, but you make your own conclusions the point is, you know, when you're trying to grow in the Lord and you see everything crumbling around you, you see a nation giving up. The, the biggest loss in the world right now, in, in, a, in, in a secular sense, in terms, is the loss of absolute truth. It didn't leave. People no longer value it. Subjective feelings are, are what really drive people. I went through a situation recently, it was a national deal, but anyway, I've seen this repeat itself over and over. People don't want to hear cold, hard facts. They want to hear warm, fuzzy opinions, vague generalities that don't stir any discomfort. And they want that. That's being just pushed forward. You see it all over the place. But you have to deal with cold, hard facts. Southwest Airlines told us, we will get you to San, Jose, or get to San Diego. And when we get to San Jose, they say, we're, you know, we're waiting for the crew. Well, that's a good, warm, fuzzy feeling. Cool. Are they ghosts? Do they magically appear? Are they not out of school? Where are these crews? Hour after hour, flight after flight, literally airport after airport, it was the same thing that was presented. I personally believe they're a good airline. Still, I I did book another flight on them already because I think they're going to work hard to clean up their act. But anyway, the point I'm making is no one wanted to say, listen, we are so sorry for shipping you to San Jose on Christmas Day, but you're stuck here. Because we can't get planes out of Denver. We can't get them out of this place. We can't, we don't have a crew. Our system just imploded. So you're stuck. Find a hotel. No one would tell us that. You know, well, we, we got a crew coming. When the crew gets here, then you see delay. 20 minutes more. Delay. An hour later, delay. An hour and a half later, cancel. Get in line for the next one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you walk over and get in line again. Like, and we did that. And I'm, I'm, I, I think they've handled it okay, honestly, for such a mess that they made. But here's my point. People don't want to hear, we are sorry. We messed up. You're stuck here. That's too much of a fact. We, and you, you can deal with it. You see it all the time. All of those. You're, you're seeing it even... I, I made my point. I got to move on. Chapter 2. Chapter 2. He who scatters has come up before your face... Man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your power mightily. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. The shields of his mighty men are made red, the valiant men are in scarlet, the chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the spears are brandished. Brandished. 
The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. And in my preparation and going through things and listening and reading and different things, I found it interesting that some have alluded to this as an end times prophecy. The, torture, the chariots with flaming torches, they indicate are vehicles and the flaming torches are their lights. And I'm like... Back off the mushrooms, man. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's such a stretch. I mean, it's so far out there to say it's this. And, and then, the, you know, the broad streets or the, they jostle one another on the broad roads is our freeways, which is pretty descriptive. You know, I mean, it's just that you're just having to bring a lot over and say, this is what it, I think this is what it could be. Like, it's a, it's, can, you, can we agree? That's, that's really massaging the text to get it to lean over to where you want it to go. I'd rather just see it for what it says. Listen, they're, 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 they're the chariots. Chariots represent really a, 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 a military force in that day. Horses and then chariots were two things that just were, would wipe out infantries. And so it was, just, it was present at that time. And they're going to jostle and, and they're going to come down is really what he's saying. He's telling Israel and Jacob, you know, this, this is going to come to an end what this nation has been doing to you. They, verse 5, he remembers his nobles. They stumble in their walk. They make haste to her walls and the defense is prepared. The gates of the river are opened and the palace is dissolved. Really interesting there in verse 6. The Tigris River, at one point during this time of, of the Babylonians and the Medes coming in and you know, ultimately conquering uh, Nineveh, the Tigris River flooded. And as the Tigris River flooded, it undercut the walls for the palace and, and the, functionally the walls of the city. And before the Ninevites could actually get the repairs done, the opposing Confederates, the opposing armies were able to actually come in through that breach or that gap and, and wreak havoc within the city. It was a type of victory. But it's just, it is, history had showed that when these annals and different things were discovered that, you know, the, oh, the, this prophecy in verse 6, this detail, which is fascinating, the gates of the river are opened and the palace is dissolved. It's decreed, she shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up and her maidservants shall lead her as with the voice of doves beating their breasts. Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they flee away. Halt, they cry, but no one turns back. Take spoil of silver, take spoil of gold. There's no end of treasure. Our wealth is very desirable, or wealth of very desirable prize. She's empty, desolate, and waste. The heart melts and the knees shake. Much pain in every side and all their faces are drained of color. When the city was sacked, um, I believe it was what we would think of as the mayor, but it was such a massive city. It was almost like a, a king or a governor. But he went into the treasury and stacked everything up and then just torched it, himself included, to try to prevent the invading armies from getting all their treasures. But... All they did was all we did was just make a nice pile of gold to take out all at once instead of a lot of pieces of ornate things. You know, the, there were there, all that they lived for, all that they had, gone in an instant when this this breach, when this this force come through. And you think about you know their treasures. There's nothing that was worth stick, sticking around for. The heart melts. People leave everything in these type of moments when they have to flee, they have to leave, especially when they know they've been so evil. Verse 11, where's the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion walked, the lioness and lion's cub, and no one made them afraid. I, I believe there's an element of this, not in zoological, meaning their, their cages where they displayed animals, which they probably did, but just the lion represents to us a creature with power and authority and it can't be challenged. And, and see what it says, he goes on to say, in verse 13, Behold, I'm against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the, young, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. That's what's being declared to Nineveh. This is one thing you never want to hear. Behold, I am against you. You never want, I don't want to ever hear that. I don't, you know, I, as a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, I won't. I will be corrected and disciplined and chastened because he loves me. 
But there's people in the world right now that God is saying to them, behold, I'm against you because you're against me. Well, when have I been against you? I'm not going to jail. I haven't robbed and killed and murdered. I have. You, because you, you have, you're against my son, Jesus Christ. It's the greatest mistake anyone could ever make. That's why Jesus said, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? To his own disciples and those that they would speak to. He brought this truth. The world says this about him, but then he says, but what about you personally, individually? Who do you say that I am? Because that is the most important question, the most important relationship that has to be resolved on his terms, on God's terms. We have to come to a reckoning of that. Let's continue on with this declaration against this city. Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. There's always somebody being victimized in this city. This city represents, quite honestly, the power of collective humanity, the power of government. This city was an evil city. It was the largest in its day, uh, obviously a world, the world power. Let me read to you one of the reasons God would call it the bloody city. Uh, David Guzik in his commentary, enduring, called The Enduring Word, a really good commentary. You should check it out. It's online and you can even get physical copies. But um, he shares these quotes from various Assyrian leaders in history. It's discovered when they found this library, if you would. This is some of their quotes. Many within the border of my own land I flayed and spread their skins upon the walls. I cut off the limbs of the officers, the royal officers who had rebelled. They boasted in this brutality, in a very macabre, very, uh, I just, it's hard to even describe it. It goes on to say, 3,000 captives I burned with fire. And we know that's an interesting thing that happens because we know the early church experienced that, where the Roman leaders even used Christians and burned them and declared the light of the world. And so it's interesting how brutal this world is, how terrible. This is another one he said, their corpses I formed into pillars. So they would literally cut their heads off of the enemies and stack up a pile as some type of a monument in a declaration of their power. It's so grotesque. For some, I cut off their hands and their fingers, and from other, I cut off their noses, their ears and their fingers, or, I put, or, or many, I put out their eyes. These are leaders, the Ninevite leaders, making these declarations. And it's like, it's like oh, look what I did. And it, was, it, it wasn't rebuked or rejected by the people. It was a culture. It was a way of life. It was, it was okay. They become okay with this type of brutality and public display. I made one pillar of the living and another of heads. I bound their heads to posts around the city. So sometimes they would make these things and cut up loved ones. And then they would leave others alive to stare and, and tie them and have to stare at this monument of dead people that they knew. Is that not messed up? I mean, you, you see why God says, you know, you're a bloody city. This, this bloody city, it is full of wickedness and stuff that is just phenomenally atrocious. And we're going to remember that because God knows what people are doing. And even though we would say, well, God, that just doesn't fit. If you're loving and kind and good and merciful, why don't you remove all of that? You know, he does have a plan for that. It's called heaven. It's called heaven, where the, where the fall of man and the evil of man that's orchestrated and driven by the enemy of man, of man Satan himself, where, where that will all be put away. And none of this will repeat itself. It'll be done forever. We will experience something that is beyond the human grasp. I'm so glad God gave us, give us detail and some pictures and some amazing things about heaven and the atmospheric conditions and the relational realities because we can't imagine it when we're so bombarded by the stuff we face in this world. I'm glad there's distinct facts about heaven that help us hold on to those things like we've already talked about. Let's continue on because I have a, have a goal. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots. Verse 3, chapter 3, Nahum. Horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of corpses, bodies, countless corpses. 
They stumble over the corpses because of the multitude of harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. So he's just talking about how it was not only generational, but it was broad, wide and broad spread, this, this um, total disregard for human life, uh, the immorality that was present in this city. It was, it was, a, it was a good man-made city. It's what man makes when man makes a city. You, you want to think contemporarily? Is there a possibility that there may be a slight hint of evil in San Francisco? Is there just a touch of rottenness in New York? Is there liable activity and horrible things happening in L.A., London, and then you just fill in the blanks? There's just something about big cities and I think it's that's another study I'm going to share with you at some time about why we even go to big cities and then wish we lived in the country. It's just weird. But I'll talk about that some other time. <laughs> man, this is what man produces. In, in verse 5, we see it again. Behold, I'm against you, says the Lord of hosts. This is a very graphic picture. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness. And the kingdom's your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile, and make you a spectacle. It shall come to pass that all will look upon you, will flee from you, and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? This is the place. This is... Nineveh It was the America, if you want to see it that way. If you just think about global power and world presence... So Nineveh was the happening place. And to many people in the world, but the majority of people not living here, the United States of America is that type of place. Everybody seems to want to be here. But they don't realize what actually is here. And this is what's being said. This, it's going to come down. Now, I'm not trying to say that the U.S. will be like Nineveh. I just see there's principles and similarities that are, that are taking place among people. And God is not overlooking the atrocities and the terrible things that happen in our world. And he will deal with it. It's been said that if I, I believe it was, was Billy Graham, and I, you, you can fact check me, um, but said basically that if God doesn't punish America, he must apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Because taking that principle that was applied there, because it wasn't just the sexual immorality. It was the pride of life and the greed. You'll find, I believe it's in Isaiah that tells us that, that brought the demise, if you would, in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so our nation as well, the world that we live in, here we are. And it's as big as we seem to be, we know right now, we know it can fall pretty fast. It'll probably come in a financial form to bring about the biggest downfall. I, just my personal thoughts, and we're not going to go any further with that. Verse 8, Speaking of this Nineveh and all these things, are you better than Noamon that was situated by the river that had waters around her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall was the sea? The Greek word for Noamon is Thebes. Thebes was destroyed. It was an amazing city. It was destroyed in 663 BC. Guess who destroyed it? The Assyrians. Guess who God is referencing? Remember how great Thebes was? You're going down bigger than they were dead. And he, they were the instrument to take down Noamon, Thebes. And now here, 663, Thebes was destroyed. And Nineveh will be destroyed 50 years later in 612 BC. This helps us put a timeline. So when you're reading through these digits, so you realize this. When you see this, because we know historically that happened, of this city... So we know that this had to be written after that event took place because how could you refer to the event unless you do it in prophetic nature, but you, how could you refer to it? And the content is referring to something that people would have been aware of. So we know that he has to be writing this, Nahum is presenting this after that secular, that world event has already happened. But we also know when Nineveh was destroyed and that was 612 BC. So yeah, 663, bring it down to 612 because you're, BC, so you're counting backwards, so to speak. And so brings you up to a city that um, is, is going to be destroyed. Are you better than them? 
verse 6, Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength. I believe it was on the Nile where Thebes was. And it was boundless. Put and Lubim were your helpers. Verse 10 of chapter 3. Yet she was carried away. She went into her captivity. Her young children also were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunk. You will be hidden. You also will seek refuge from the enemy. All your strongholds are fig trees that ri- with ripened figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Surely your people in your midst are women. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. Verse 14 it's almost kind of kicking into almost a little bit of cynicism, maybe a little mocking, if you would. Do what you think you can do, because you're all going to flee. All the things you held tight and you, you thought were going to be your, your refuge and your hope, they're going to be hopeless. It goes on to say, you see, draw water for the siege. Fortify your strongholds. Go into the clay and treat the mortar, or tread the mortar. Make strong the brick comb. Then the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will, make you, it will eat you up like a locust. Make yourself many like the locusts. Make yourself many like the swarming locusts. You have multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust plunders and flies away. Verse 17, your commanders are like swarming locusts and your generals like great grasshoppers, which camp in the hedges on a cold day. When the sun rises, they flee away and the place they, where they are is not known. You see the imagery is being presented. All your strength, all your coordination, all your military might, all these things that are strategic and orderly and effective, and it's about a, a, a system, and you move people in and out. These commanders will rule over. They're going to be like a grasshopper on a cold day. You know what happens with a grasshopper on a cold day? They're good for one jump. And then like, it takes them forever to reload the legs. So there's that point where they just they can't do anything. And that's the picture of the commanders. And then when they warm up and they're able to move, what does it say they'll do? They're gone like the grasshoppers, which you don't, you know, I love fishing with grasshoppers. Back when you could use light bait, I get up early in the morning, I go up to sagebrush, you just pluck them off. Take your pick, multiple colors, different sizes, just pick them up, put them in your little pouch. And after lunch, you fish for minnow, with minnows in the morning, and after a little later, you switch to grasshoppers, and it was awesome. You didn't go looking for grasshoppers in the afternoon because you couldn't find any. Stinking snakes were everywhere. So I just, where I was fishing. So the point is that you just don't find them in the afternoon because they're just, they're, you see them flying away, but you, if you ever try catching them, you notice they warm up, they move really well. That's the imagery, very practical. I love that God uses things that are not philosophical as much as they're practical. People understand that. People understood these things when he was presenting this truth. And they, even the Assyrians, verse 18, Your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and no one gathers them. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually. There was such oppression and such a, a force from this Assyrian uh, empire that everybody in the world was in fear that they would be the next one that would be a part of this kind of invading force. So when they hear Nineveh has fallen, it has been, it's desolate, it's destroyed, they were clapping, not because they were glad for death, we should never clap, no one should ever clap that. But this particular force had been removed. It wasn't a threat hanging over them. They didn't have to worry about it at any other point. I want to wrap up. We're right on the line. Let's uh, go to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, I like to look at verse 16 and 17 in light of what we've looked at and letting that kind of ruminate within us and realize we didn't live there, but some of these things are evident here as far as just there's just terrible things happening in our world right now that, you know, you can't rely on the news coming to you accurately. You, you have to really dig it up and find it. Whether we're talking about, you know, just the tra- sexual trafficking, the, the, the human trafficking. Um, I don't even need to get into it. You live in those same worlds I do. And it's hard to reconcile. God, when will you come? When will this be re- re- resolved? Holy Spirit, what's happening? 
Well, Psalm 73, I encourage you to read the whole one and whole psalm in light of that. But let's look at verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. See, we don't rejoice over enemies and and evil people dying. We we don't rejoice over that. We're, We're broken. We rejoice when they come to the living God. When they come to a realization that they need forgiveness and they experience that gift of God and they're born again and changed people. That's what we rejoice in. And until we, we understand these things, and you know, it says, I, I, I get it, I, I couldn't figure it out, but then when I went and realized, you know, in light of the presence of God, and he understood their end, and he goes on, speaks a little more, we'll pick it up over in verse 26, or 25, I mean. The psalmist concludes, working through these hard things of life, whom have I, have I in heaven but you? And there's none other upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but, the, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. Verse 28, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. That's awesome.